Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So just before going to record this episode, I realised that this one, when you chuck in all the supplementals and the chat episode, is the 50th helping of the Queens of England podcast that I have put out. Now, if you are like me, then you'll love a few meaningless statistics. So here are some. To prepare for each show, I have written a total of 287,071 words in 11,843 sentences. Each word averages out at 4.43 letters, and each sentence averages 24 words, though I put a lot of that down to medieval writers having vendettas against full stops. While these statistics aren't entirely pointless, what is not so are the amazing number of you that are now listening each week. If you believe my download stats, I get more listeners every day now than I used to get per month when this show was in its infancy. The support that you all have given me is amazing, and I'm so grateful. A special shout out to listener Glenn last week, who sent me an email essentially allowing me to have an ego boost. You can consider it well and truly boosted, my friend. Today, we will be doing part three in the four-part mini-series on Anne Boleyn. But before we get going, I have my usual reminders to check out my Facebook and Twitter pages, as well as my website, the links for which are in the show notes, or you can just Google like a modern person. And of course, my all-important Patreon page, where, if you so wish, you can chuck a few quid my way to help me out. And I would like to thank a few people who have recently done so. They are the amazing and generous Lindsay, Diane, Sonia, Michelle, Ariel, and Jenny. Thanks, you guys. You're all awesome. If you'd like to join them in their awesome, the address is patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 43, Anne Boleyn, Mistress on the Throne. Last time, we saw Anne Boleyn through her long apprenticeship at Queenship, while Henry sought for and finally attained the annulment of his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. Anne went from being a potential mistress to being crowned Queen of England in the middle of 1533. If we date their first decision to marry as occurring in 1527, which is where I would personally place it, then this was a marriage around seven years in the making. It would, of course, last less than half that time, but that is the story for the next episode. Today, we're going to look at Anne Boleyn as a queen, because this is something that often gets put aside. When you look at most narratives of her, they tend to follow a model of rise and fall, as befitting a woman who suffered such great peaks and the lowest of troughs in her life. Yet she was, for three years or so, Queen of England, 
and it wasn't like she was just sitting around all that time waiting for things to go so horribly wrong. And even then, many of the things which she is associated with, such as religious reform, are often exaggerated. So today, we're going to look at Anne Boleyn, not as the other woman or tragic victim, but as a Queen of England like any of the other women that we have examined. With that in mind, we're going to use a thematic approach for this episode, and judge Anne's queenship using our traditional parameters – motherhood, family advantage, morality, and influence. And, in the words of Lewis Carroll, we will begin at the beginning, with motherhood. We left off last time with the birth of Anne's first child, Elizabeth. Now, of course, we all know that this girl grew up to be one of England's most long-lived and famous queens, but at the time this was just seen as an unfortunate beginning to a marriage that had but one purpose – the creation of sons. As Eric Ives puts it, quote, To have a son, one son, that was all that was necessary. Surely that was not too difficult in an age of large families. Surely that could not be difficult with a husband like Henry, who at the time, and since, was recognised as being a fleshly man, fond of women and a sexual predator. All that might seem necessary was a healthy wife, and sons would arrive. Anne had only to lie back and do her duty for England. Ives goes on, though, to explain why this image is not quite in line with reality. Henry may well have been a highly sexed man, but it is widely thought that he suffered from some sexual difficulties. This is all speculative, but it is worth noting that with the eight women with whom he is known for sure to have had some attempted sexual relationship, that would be his six wives, Mary Boleyn and Betty Blount, he had only four children, and only two of them made it out of their teens, and it wasn't for lack of trying. Let us equally not forget that this was a man in his early 40s marrying a woman in her 30s. These are hardly the peak ages for having children, and in an age of poor natal care, the odds were not exactly strongly in their favour. It is important to realise from the off that the problems Anne had in giving birth to children was highly unlikely to have been due to any fault of her own. There were no problems of fertility in her family, and yet the spectre of fertility problems follow Henry wherever he went. Of course... This is not how the Tudor court, nor most importantly Henry himself, saw things. Our old friend Eustace Chapuis records a conversation that he had with the king, where after he had pointed out to Henry that just because he had a new wife, this did not necessarily mean that more children were coming, Henry replied, quote, Am I not a man like other men? Am I not? Am I not? Potency related to fertility and sexual virility were thought to be directly related, and so Henry was very sensitive to any suggestion that any of this was his fault. Yet, all of this seemed irrelevant in the early years of Anne's queenship. After the birth of Elizabeth in September 1533, Anne became pregnant again just three months later. As I said repeatedly in the last show, Henry had been certain that his first child with Anne was destined to be a son, and this was equally the case with Anne's second pregnancy. By April, about four months into the pregnancy, Henry had already arranged for a number of gifts, including a highly elaborate silver cradle, which was festooned with Tudor roses and precious stones, as well as gold-embroidered bedding and cloth of gold baby clothes. This was going to be one bling baby. Things were all going to plan until July, about seven months in, when Anne suddenly miscarried. This all happened while the court was on progress, and so it was fairly easy to keep a secret from anyone outside the inner circle. Eustace Chapuis, for example, only seems to have found out about it by September, which of course should have been the time when the child was due to be born. A girl and a miscarriage. After all the effort that Henry had gone to in order to get the annulment of his first marriage, it appeared that he was right back to where he started. And let's not forget Anne here. While people at the time had strong views about the effect that a woman's morality and loyalty had on her ability to conceive, 
We know that giving a son to Henry was one thing that was entirely out of her control. She could do nothing except try and try, and so far she was over too. It is likely that the trauma and disappointment of this miscarriage is related to the fact that it was well over a year until Anne's next pregnancy, but this too ended in miscarriage in January 1536. Now it's worth saying that these numbers are disputed, as our main sources for this period tend to be foreigners, or people not close to the centre of the action. This leads to confusing and contradictory information from people like Chapuis, and so it is possible that Anne is carried between one and three children. Some have been dismissed as phantom pregnancies, and others have been discounted because of faulty dating. However, from what I have read, one successful delivery and two miscarriages appears to have been Anne's legacy when it came to pregnancy. Now, of course, this would not do at all, and believe me, we will come back to this later, but of course motherhood wasn't just about giving birth. We know frustratingly little about the relationship between Anne and Elizabeth, and though some people have tried to paint it as a very close relationship, I think sometimes this is more about imposing our values on the past. People want to think well of Anne as a mother, and therefore we assume that she was a good one. Anne's main concern with regard to Elizabeth was as much to do with mothering as it was to do with protecting her status and her future. She was set up at Hatfield House in Hertfordshire, and placed under the care of one of Anne Boleyn's aunts. This meant, of course, that Anne would not have seen much of her daughter, as was the norm, but the princess did travel to court from time to time. For now, of course, Elizabeth was the heir presumptive as Mary was cut out of the line of succession when she was declared illegitimate. She was given many attendants, most of whom had been stripped from her half-sister. Insult was piled onto injury when Mary was forced to become one of those attendants for Elizabeth and was treated with little respect, apparently being cooped up in the attic, much like Cinderella, only not French. Even Anne's greatest apologists, and I'm not one of them, cannot say that she treated Mary well, though to be fair, she was hardly alone in that. Mary had followed her mother's lead in steadfastly ignoring all that had happened, clinging to the position that Henry's marriage to Catherine was still in effect, and thus Anne was nothing but a concubine and Elizabeth a bastard. This did not endear her to her stepmother. Maybe Mary was Cinderella. In her late teens, during Anne's tenure as queen, Mary was as popular as her mother and a dangerous locus of opposition in the eyes of many. Henry used the same tactics on Mary as he had done on his mother. Henry used the same tactics on Mary as he had done on her mother, used sanction after sanction, threat after threat, to make her conform. He essentially treated her like a disobedient child, taking away all of her toys and making her stand on the naughty step until she acquiesced. And yet Anne Boleyn gets so much the blame for all of this, when Henry and his minister Cromwell were far more to blame than she. Anne was always a convenient scapegoat for opponents like Chapuis and Charles V to blame, because it allowed them to still negotiate with the real power brokers, Henry and Cromwell, despite them being the ones who were really behind it all. That said, she cannot be absolved quite so easily. Now, as I keep saying, we can't take Chapuis at face value, but he does report numerous instances when Anne scolds and humiliates her stepdaughter. Anne had a sharp temper and did not suffer fools gladly, and given the pressure that she was under and the obdurate nature of Mary, it is understandable that she might lash out at such a convenient target, especially one who loathed her so. Like Henry, she seems to have attempted to use a carrot-and-stick method to win over Mary, but to no avail. This is from Eustace Chapuis, so remember that Anne is always the king's mistress, and the queen, according to him, is Catherine, and the princess is Mary. Quote, The king's mistress, having gone to visit her daughter, sent a message to the princess, requesting her to visit and honour her as queen, which she was. 
Should she do so, she would be as well received as she could wish, and it would be the means of regaining the good pleasure and favour of the king, her father, and of her being treated as well, or perhaps better, than she had ever been. The princess's answer was that she knew not of any other queen in England than Madame, her mother, and that should the king's mistress, as she called Anne de Boulain, Boleyn, do her the favour she spoke of and intercede with the king, her father, she would most certainly be grateful to her. After which answer, the king's mistress renewed her remonstrances, made her profuse offers, and ended by threatening, but neither her promises nor her threats could make the princess change her mind, and she returned home highly disappointed and indignant, fully determined to put down that proud Spanish blood, as she called it, and do her worst. There are many such rants and raves by Anne and Chapuis, some worse than this, including threats to Mary's life, but I think it's safe to say that those are rather exaggerated though it is unlikely that they were completely invented. He blames Anne for Henry not seeing Mary when he visited Elizabeth at Hatfield. He blames her for everything, but as I've said many times, Henry was his own man and was quite capable of being nasty to his daughter himself. It was in as much of his interest as Anne at this time to make sure that any right of succession of his surely soon-to-come son was as airtight as possible, and Mary stood in the way of that. Mary, too, was quite willing to be the martyr here and did not even pretend to be civil with Anne on any occasion. This hatred needed two to tango, and I think it's fair to say that Mary hated Anne far more than vice versa. There was an instant at Eltham Chapel, where Anne heard from an attendant that Mary had curtsied to her before leaving and Anne had not noticed. Anne quickly sent off a note to Mary, apologising for the slight, stating that she hoped, quote, This may be an entrance of friendly correspondence. Isn't that nice and friendly? Mary reacted to this by insulting her, saying that she was completely wrong, doubted that Anne could have even written it to begin with, and stating that her curtsy was to the altar and to God alone. All this is by way of saying that I think criticisms of Anne related to her treatment of Mary are rather overblown. She was very far from the worst culprit. But, that said, that didn't mean that she treated her well. Like it or not, Mary was not so much a person in the complex world of Tudor politics. She was the wedge issue, the point behind which people either rallied behind or stood opposed. To Anne, Mary was an unreformed relic of her husband's past, and she was quite willing to play nice if she just accepted the fact that Anne was the queen, and that Mary was no longer a princess. Quite understandably, though perhaps unwisely, Mary refused and treated Anne with utter contempt. For either side to go along with the other will be to give up on essential ground, and neither could. It's very hard to assign much blame in such a situation. Of course, the problem was that Anne was the one blamed at the time by her enemies, and the people at large for basically everything, but we'll get to that later. Okay, so moving away from motherhood, the next thing to discuss is family advantage, and this will be very quick, because quite simply, there wasn't any. This was the first time since Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville that a king had married someone who brought literally no advantage with her, be it dowry, foreign alliance, or domestic peace. Like Elizabeth, though, Anne did bring a whole lot of her family into the royal court, which I will also go into later, but Henry essentially gained nothing material from marrying Anne, which made it far easier for him to dispose of her. There is a reason why Henry had two of his domestically born queens executed, but none of his foreign-born ones. This brings us to piety and morality, and here, well, there's a lot more to say. Anne Boleyn was almost certainly the most reformist queen that England had ever had to that point, and has been identified by many as our first Protestant queen. Was she, though? Well... Her patronage meant that the advancement into the English church of a number of bishops and archbishops that would turn out later to be ardent Protestants. 
These include Archbishop Thomas Cramner and Bishop Hugh Latimer, both of whom will be burnt at the stake for their religion during the reign of Queen Mary. But there were others too, whom she patronised, who were not Protestant zealots, including Nicholas Shaxton, who resigned as bishopric as early as 1539 over doctrinal differences with Henry. Her influence extended deep down the ecclesiastical food chain, with her pressing for reformers in more lowly positions. This at first was to ensure that Henry's great matter went smoothly, but later on it seems to have been to support her own religious policies. But later on it seems to have been to support her own religious policies. Since we know that England became a Protestant kingdom from 1547, with a slight blip during the reign of Queen Mary, it is easy to ascribe a religious reformer in this period with ardent Protestantism, but that is rather a simplistic viewpoint. Henry was complicit in every religious reform taken during his reign, yet he considered himself to be a Catholic to his death. The break with Rome and the Act of Supremacy were not necessarily Protestant acts. Kings have been defying popes for years without their Catholicism coming into question. That said, I think it's fair to say that Anne can be described as a Protestant, but I don't think she can be put in the same camp as zealots like Cramner or even Catherine Parr. The problem here is that we have two sources who are on opposite sides of the spectrum and polemical in their views. We know, of course, all about Chapuis, but we also have William Latimer, not to be confused with Bishop Hugh, who wrote an account about Anne's beliefs for her daughter Elizabeth during her reign. Neither can be trusted to be objective when they had such clear agendas. There are no tracts written by her where she lays out her religious views as there are with her future successor on the throne, Catherine Parr, though that might seem a little bit too much to ask for. She did possess Lutheran books by authors such as Simon Fish and William Tyndale and shared them with Henry, and it seems that they did talk about and debate theology together. She had a keen interest in scripture and owned a copy of the Bible translated into French, and it is likely, though far from certain, that she lobbied Henry to legalise copies of the Bible translated into English being circulated. Yet, there is a case to say that Anne's commitment to religious reform was only skin deep, to push Henry into breaking with Rome so that she could win the crown, and then her subsequent actions were about maintaining her position. That is certainly the view of G.W. Bernard, but this view is, I think, somewhat problematic, and is based on only using hard, completely knowable facts, when of course history, especially from 500 years in the future, has very few of these, and thus we must rely at least to an extent on educated assumptions based off limited information. It seems that she did prefer to use her French translation of the Bible, and a promotion of reformers continued after the break with Rome was secured and her position strengthened. Her trade in translated Bibles offered her no tangible advantage. Indeed, it opened her up to criticism and danger, yet she did it anyway. She was a pious and devout woman, of that there can be no doubt, and she had a great interest in theology, particularly Christian humanism. Indeed, in less religiously contentious times, and if she had come to the throne in a more traditional way, she would have been considered a model queen when it came to piety. She gave considerable alms to the poor, as well as distributing food and clothes. A short reign as queen is probably the reason why relatively few foundations or literary dedications are ascribed to her. These are things that take time to come about, but there are some. As befitted a humanist, she was a strong supporter of education, sponsoring poor young scholars and giving money to both of England's universities, Oxford and Cambridge, and lobbied the king to exempt these institutions from secular and ecclesiastical taxes. Where does this leave us, then, with Anne's morality? Well, if we judge her dispassionately, then we see a woman of devotion to the word of God who did all the right things when it came to charity and patronage. If her reign... 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It had been long, and the tide of religious reform had continued to grow with her guiding hand to help shape it then it would, I think, have gone down better in the eyes of contemporaries, much like her daughter Elizabeth would do during her reign. Unfortunately, she fell early, and her religious views were used as a political football for centuries, tarring her as a heretic in the eyes of her enemies. To them, she was no less than the cause of England's descent into heresy. She tricked and beguiled Henry into breaking with Rome, encouraging him to brutally execute scores of good heroic clerics who dared to stand up for the true religion. Of course, the arc of history is long, and modern writers, as well as those writing in the reign of her daughter, see her as an instigator of vital religious reform and a precursor to the Protestant kingdom that I still live in today. But that is to give her too much credit, though had she lived, maybe she would have gone on to have such an impact. Speaking of impact, we're now going to move on to influence. Some queens of England had very little influence at all, often because they were either too young, too inexperienced, or simply did not think it their place. Anne was none of these things. I'm going to divide this up into two sections, political influence and cultural influence. And let's start with probably the sexier one, political influence. The most important relationship that Anne had was with Henry. Queens owed their position and their prominence to the man that they married. Queenship was not a job you were born to, or earned meritocratically. It was a calling arranged by other men. Or at least, that was normally the case, but in Anne's case, more than anyone else since Henry of Aquitaine, and maybe Elizabeth Woodville, she had engineered the match. It was a love match, and this shows in the closeness, but also the volatility of their marriage. I need not talk any more about the strength and passion of their relationship. I've talked about it already, and it is well documented. What has also long been written about is the flip side of this, the rows. Now the problem is, of course, that any and all marital problems between the two were seized upon by Anne's enemies. They sexed them up, and on occasions outright fabricated them. Our old friend Chapuis is our most important and least reliable witness here. Here is an example of one of their rows that he claims occurred. Quote, Full of jealousy, and not without reason, she used words with the king that he did not like, and he told her that she must shut her eyes and endure, just like others who are worthier than she, and that she ought to know that he could humiliate her in only a moment longer than it had taken to exalt her. 
This sounds like a blazing row, but it also shows, in a way, the closeness of their relationship. Anne did not suffer fools, and was more than willing to speak the truth to power. This had been, in part, what had attracted Henry to Anne, and also, one imagines, what made them such a tight partnership, but it does seem to have also led to these blazing rows. That said, this particular row that Shepley relates, another image that people had of their marriage was not this passionate, intimate, quarrelsome relationship, but more of Anne having the king totally under her thumb while the kingdom went to the dogs. This is from a Flemish merchant. Quote, They say in Flanders that the king is abused by the new queen, and that his gentleman goeth daily a-playing where they will, and his grace abides by her all the day long, and dare not go out for the rumour of the people. Yet of course, these are from the enemies of Anne. How about from the people close to home? Well, from the letters that we have surviving from the period, we have little snippets here and there about their marriage. There are many instances where they are described as being merry and enjoying each other's company. I mean, there's a reason why Henry went to such trouble to marry a woman who provided him with no material advantage. There is one reliable source that states that Henry said in late October 1533 that he would be willing to go around as if a beggar and beg for charity door to door rather than give her up. These are just words, of course, but the sentiment is strong. The biggest strain on their relationship appears to be over the question of Henry's mistresses. Henry had, by all accounts, remained chaste for the years that he and Anne awaited the annulment of his marriage to Catherine, but now that they were married, he saw no reason why he could not continue with the same pattern of behaviour they had been doing in his first marriage. According to Chapuis, Henry, quote, "...renewed and increased the love that he had previously towards another very beautiful maiden of the court." For haters of Anne, this is all just so perfect. The other woman wins her man only to become the jilted wife as her new husband finds another other woman. Although Chapuis must be taken with a handful of salt, this does seem to have occurred, and Anne reacted angrily, demanding that this new mistress be sent away. Henry refused, and stated that Anne ought to know her place. She may have lofty ambitions and expectations, but this was still a man's world. Henry's world, not Anne's. The rows were very real, and seemed to have revolved around this central premise. Anne wanted to be a partner to Henry, to be in essence a co-ruler. Henry wanted a wife who produced children. He respected Anne's intellect enormously, it had been her principal attraction, one could argue, but he was not looking for a partner. The power she wielded had to be controlled on his terms. To quote Eric Ives, quote, In the relationship between Henry and his second wife, Storm followed Sunshine, Sunshine followed Storm. In an ultimate sense, the problem of Henry and Anne arose from the fact that there was emotion in the relationship. It is worth saying here how unusual this is. We just don't get from almost any of our other queens this much of a window into the passion of the relationship. We mostly have a load of women who knew their place, who acted within a structure that they helped develop in a partnership with, but equally in deference to, the king. Queens sometimes rose above their husbands, when they are too weak or too ill to rule, and on occasion even rebelled against them, but a queen demanding almost equal rights during the reign of a capable king in peacetime? This hadn't happened since Eleanor of Aquitaine. And Anne was not Eleanor of Aquitaine. She did not have lands or foreign titles of her own that she could bring to bear. She was not Catherine of Aragon, in the sense that she did not have the foreign relations with whom she could act as an intermediary. But what she did have was a deep personal connection with the king. Despite all that I have said, it must not be forgotten that this had been a love match, and they had been together for a long time before they got married. This gave Anne an in, and she used it during her small window of queenship. We've talked a lot about how queens were seen to exercise their power, 
the pillow talk method of influence, where a queen could talk to her husband in private about such and such a matter. Anne's ability to do so was recognised by contemporaries. In a position sent to Henry in 1535, Anne is described as having, quote, the name to be a mediatrix betwixt your grace and high justice. This was all fairly normal stuff. Many queens are described so. But Anne was far more than that. Like some queens who came along with a great entourage, Anne had her own faction at court, and while she was not necessarily the leader, she was certainly one of them, and these people filled all the key positions. Cramner was Archbishop of Canterbury. Her brother was one of the two gentlemen of the Privy Chamber. Cromwell, for now her ally, was the King's secretary and effective chief minister. The Lord Chancellor was Thomas Audley, to whom she lent a house during a plague outbreak. This patronage extended below these powerful positions at court, and while it was not solely Anne's doing that they reached these heights, it is unlikely that they would have done so had she not become the Queen. The relationship between Anne and Cromwell is an absolutely fascinating one, as her rise coincides with his rise, and her fall coincides with his zenith. We'll talk about the latter in much more detail next time, but the relationship between these two powerful figures at the Tudor court was crucial in these years. So, to recap you on Cromwell, for those of you who aren't familiar, he was Henry's former chief minister's right-hand man, who had risen to fame when he had helped the king achieve the break with Rome. Though he did not hold the position of Lord Chancellor, the traditional post held by the king's chief political operator, he was the main man who handled the day-to-day running of the kingdom, as well as aspects of foreign policy. Anne and Cromwell's rise had been, to an extent, symbiotic, and so it is not entirely surprising that they were close political allies in this period. When nobles wrote to Cromwell, they often instructed or expected him to pass it on to Anne, and vice versa, and when necessary, they would then perform a pincer movement on the king to influence him this way or that. Here is a part of a note written by Hugh Latimer to Cromwell. Quote, I trust you have not forgotten my last suit, with which I was minded to have gone to the king, but the queen, remembering at what end my lord Salisbury was, said it would be enough to leave it to you. Next is an example of Cromwell acting as the Queen's intermediary in a letter sent by a courtier. He wished Cromwell to pass on, quote, A letter of congratulation to the Queen's Highness, delivered unto her by your hands, not doubting but likewise as of your goodness, that any my merit hath pleased you to set me forward, so it may like you with her grace, so set forth my service and goodwill to her grace. This was not just about Anne and Cromwell petitioning the King, Often it was about people petitioning Anne to influence Cromwell, and as might be expected, she had quite a lot of sway. These aren't particularly exciting bits of politics. They are mostly about a person wanting to gain such and such a position or complaining about such and such a guy taking their land. Examples of this include a letter by Anne to a Dr. Crome, where he signals her, quote, "'Pleasure concerning your promotion under the parsonage of Aldermary within the City of London, which we have obtained for you.' There is another, where she requests that a client of hers that she had placed in Cromwell's service be given a post in a wealthy monastery, and many other instances. These are not isolated incidents. This is a woman in the thick of the action, and we can tell this because of her involvement in the minutiae. Power at court is not just about knowing the right nobles, it's about layers of patronage, having supporters down the food chain as well as in positions of power around the king. Anne recognised that, and was a big player. This meant that competition for positions as one of Anne's ladies was fierce, as her involvement in political affairs raised the profile of her attendants. Indeed, there were people, like a priest called James Billingford, who made a profitable side living, pretending to be a member of Anne's household and taking money in exchange for a supposed leg up the political ladder. The extent of her influence cannot simply be put down to her wearing of the crown. Most queens did not have Anne's level of power. 
nor can it be necessarily due to her closeness with the king, as many very close royal marriages did not involve a queen at the centre of political life. While these two things are important, there are two other factors. One is quite simply Anne's desire to be involved, and her level of intellect, which allowed her to do so despite being born a woman in a man's world. The other is her wealth. Now, of course, Anne came with no dowry, so Henry, when he made her Marchioness of Pembroke, essentially created one for her. When Catherine's lands were transferred to her in 1533 when she became queen, this made Anne the richest of any of Henry's wives, and indeed one of the wealthiest in English history to that point. Most of it came from rents, and Anne was very concerned to make sure that these were being run as efficiently and profitably as possible. I'm not going to go into great detail on this, as it is all rather dull, but she took a deep personal interest in the running of her estates, as can be shown in surviving documents drawn up for her to examine. Think of her as Lady Mary Crawley, if you like, in this way. Or, if you prefer, Eleanor of Castile, but one who had far more land than Edward I's first wife ever had. What I'm trying to say is that Anne was not afraid of nitty-gritty detail, and was determined to make sure that she had a sound footing, both in terms of the amount of land that she held, because that was where the prestige lay, but also the profitability of that land. Independent wealth gave her influence that was separate from that of the king, and allowed her to pursue her own ends without worry about Henry pulling the rug from under her. What it also did was allow her to fund a very opulent lifestyle, and that brings us on to her cultural influence. Eric Ives, in his book from which I have quoted extensively, says, quote, It is clear that in dress sense and wardrobe, Anne Boleyn anticipated Elizabeth I's acute awareness of the politics of ostentation. Each had more than a love of mere finery, rather a recognition that in order to play the part, one must dress the part. In the Tudor court, as in, I would argue, pretty much every court up to this point, everything was to do with showing off your status. How did you achieve the status? Through wealth, title and inheritance. This was why Roman emperors wore the colour purple, it was the most expensive colour dye, and so showed off their wealth. It's why nobles wandered around with their liveries on their clothes, and why their clients wore it on theirs as well. It's why kings and queens wore ermine at their coronations. It's why nobles chased after titles and royal jobs. It was all about adding that extra string to your bow, yet another feather in your cap. Sometimes literally. Now, the relatively modest queens in our story had no need for extravagant expenditure on their wardrobe, apartments and palaces. They weren't much involved in politics beyond great state occasions, and so a little need for such things. But look at the powerful queens in our story, people like Margaret of Anjou and Isabella of France. Their expenditures were massive, and this wasn't mere frivolity. As I've said, you had to look the part to play the part. This explains the bills that have survived down the years. Anne, as I've said quite a few times, was a fan of all things French, and all things French cost a pretty penny. There is a suspicion that, much like modern female celebrities, she never wore a gown more than once, which, as you might imagine, meant that she had quite the collection of clothing and ran up quite a bill. And the concern with using the politics of ostentation was not solely focused on her wardrobe. No, sir. Much as animals like to mark their territory by peeing on things, Henry and Anne liked to carve or embroider their personal branding, the HA logo, on pretty much everything. At Hampton Court Palace, for example, there was, quote, a carpet of gold, silver and silk needlework with roses of red and white, and Queen Anne's ciphers with a border of the same of honeysuckles, acorns, H and A of light needlework, fringed at both ends with a deep fringe, and at both sides with a narrow fringe of Venice gold silver and lined with green damask. If carpets aren't your thing, then how about this from the palace during the reign of Edward VI? 
Quote, A chair of iron covered over with needlework, all wrought with the wilk and gold, with the late Queen Anne's cipher, the post and back, fringed with Guinness gold, with four pommels of silver and gilt, with the king and the said Queen Anne's arms in them, the seat covered with cloth of gold. I could go on. It was carved into palaces and churches, every kind of furniture from chairs and beds, from cushions to tapestries. Of course, this was as much Henry's doing as it was Anne's, but he didn't do that with the rest of his wives, certainly not the ones that followed. He did this with and for Anne because she wanted to be a figure of importance and he recognised the value in that, at least at first. Of course, Anne needed palaces to house all of this marked furniture and she was given plenty of those. Henry took from his former favourite Wolsey his two chief residences, York Place and Hampton Court, and embarked on an extensive building programme. What Anne's involvement was in all of this is unclear for York Place, but for Hampton Court we have plenty of evidence to suggest that she was very involved in the details, especially in her own quarters. At other palaces, we see her symbols everywhere, as well as evidence of her own expensive French tastes. Moving on from this, we have Anne's interest in music. In the archives of the Royal College of Music, we have a book of music commissioned, we believe, by Anne during her courtship with Henry in 1527. It includes compositions by many continental composers who are known to frequent the courts of Margaret of Austria and Francis I, the places where Anne had grown up and may well have met. One of the songs from it is playing in the background right now. I'll stop talking for a moment so that you can hear a bit of it. It's called Wene's Regret, Wene's Tous, or Come Repining, Come Whatever, and it is rather beautiful. You can find a link to it in the show notes. one of six secular songs or chansons in the songbook, the majority of which are religious and according to Ives, quote, with an evident lyrical melodic line, the chansons strove for lightness and for music married to words chosen for grace and wit, often bordering on the risque. That might as well have been Anne's motto, don't you think? Anne's queenship then seems to all have been rather grand and impressive. She was a powerful involved queen who did not shirk the normal wifely duties. In three years of queenship, she was pregnant three times, although she only produced one living child who was a girl. Aside from that, she did everything right, and even though she wasn't getting any younger, there was plenty of time for more children to be born. In 1536, the year of her fall, she was only 35 or so. Plenty of queens had given birth to healthy male heirs when older than that. So what went wrong? Tune in next time hear about what must be the most spectacular breakdown of a relationship in English royal history, as Henry went from besotted lover to signing her death warrant. Why? Well, let's just say it's complicated. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 